morning, everybody. How are you? Are you good? Why don't you give the person next to you a high five and grab a seat. High five, high ten. Thanks, Sam. That's good there. Thank you. So this morning I've titled my message, That Tricky Passage. Whoa. Yeah, everyone go, whoa. And my subtitle, which is much longer, I didn't send it to Mitch, is that tricky passage that no one wants to preach on, but everyone everyone wants to argue about on the internet. Woohoo! Are you excited? So today I'm going to preach on Ephesians 5.21 to Ephesians 6.9. Ben did a great job last week preaching on the beginning of Ephesians 5. He took the easy part. I'm going to take the hard part. I volunteered. I actually volunteered, to be honest, I volunteered. So apparently not even the great Charles Spurgeon preached on this, on the first part of this passage, so whoa. So let's pray. Would you pray for me? I need your prayers. Father God, I just thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is good, always good, because you're good. And I pray, Lord God, as we, as we read the word, as I try to dissect it, that, Lord, you would speak to people. You would speak. It would be your words, not my words. And I pray, Lord, we've just been singing about freedom. I pray these words will bring freedom and life. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me introduce myself. I'm Felicity, part of the pastoral team. I'm married to the amazing Stephen John Olley. Um, yeah, I made a good choice marrying him. Let me tell you a few things about our marriage. Um, Steve and I, yeah, be, be afraid, Stevie. Woo-hoo. I've got the microphone. Steve and I met through young adults at church. It's a great way to meet your future husband or wife. Not that that's the reason you should come, but it is a good, good benefit. Um, a little bit of history. When Steve first asked me out, it took me four weeks to say yes. Whoa, four weeks. I left him hanging. Let me explain. In the first week, I was just trying to figure out did you just ask me out? Because he's, he's multifaceted, so he's very indirect. So he just asked, would you like to deepen our friendship? <laughs> I know. How funny is that? <laughs> and I was thinking, did he just ask me out? Like, what does that actually mean? So that was week one. I thought it was kind of sweet. Yeah, write that down, boys. In the second week, I was really mad at God because actually I'd I'd dated guys before. Sometimes you can have messy stuff and it hurts. And I was just me and God and I was really happy with that. So I kind of told God, don't send any guys. I was really mad at God the second week. In the third week, I had to change my thinking about Steve because I'd kind of friend-zoned him, you know what I mean, right? Before that was even a thing. I kind of saw Steve as like my big brother, and so you don't really date your brother, right? I mean, brother in Christ, but... So I had to kind of work out, can I go from respect, because I really respected Steve, to romance? And who knows, that's a big transition, right? Girls, you know, that's a big thing. Here's the thing, and I want to really bring this out. I really respected Steve. If I was a fly on the wall... Watching him, I would say, I like the way he treats people. He has integrity. He has character. 
I actually really respected him, which is important because I remember thinking that I could never marry a man I didn't respect. And that was even before I'd read a Bible. Of course, Ephesians 5.33 says that wives must respect their husbands. So when I give you a free bit of advice, girls, if you're dating a guy and you think, maybe I'll get married to him, do you respect him? Ooh, everyone go, ooh. Do you like him? Like, do you actually think he's got solid character? Because if you don't respect him, you probably shouldn't marry him. So in the fourth week, I had a crisis in my extended family, which was really upsetting. And I thought, who can I debrief with? Who can I actually tell this to and unburden? And of course, I thought of Steve. And I've been unburdening myself with him for the last 31 years. (laughs) Poor guy. He's a very good listener. Actually, I liked the fact that Steve is a really good listener. That's important, right, for us girls, because we've got a lot of words. So, do you want to see a wedding photo? We've been married for 31 years. I married my best friend. Do you want to see a wedding photo? Whoa! Woo! <laughs> Look at that, Mo. Isn't he gorgeous? See why I married him? Just a quick disclaimer, it's not a mullet, Okay. It's not a mullet. Now, there's nothing wrong with a mullet. If you've got a mullet, it's all good. I'm just saying, it, it was just long hair. It was the 90s. So, I married my best friend. Uh, we have two very intelligent, handsome sons in Joshua and Christopher and a future, future daughter-in-law in Amanda. So, I'm going to attempt today to unpack some tricky verses Um, Maybe some touchy subjects and, of course, there's wide, widely differing views on this passage, but it's all good. Um, And by the way, I've never read so many different versions of one um, passage, never read so many theological dissertations, that's actually a hard word to say, or Bible dictionaries or commentaries as I have for this sermon, and I only say that to say I don't take this subject lightly. So here's the thing, ever since the fall, as described in Genesis 3, relationships between men and women have been broken or corrupted. And we've got it wrong over and over again. Both men and women have not treated each other in the way that God wants us to, right? And there's been unnecessary conflict. However, here's the good news. Do you want some good news this morning? So imagine a timeline. I believe what was lost and destroyed in the Garden of Eden at the fall was found and restored in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus went to the cross, he surrendered to his Father's will and restored relationships. Do you believe that? So obviously we know what happened in the Garden of Eden. Woman and then man was enticed into sin. And there were serious consequences for that sin. And it affected our relationships. But, everyone say but. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus surrendered his will to his Father's will. He went to the cross to redeem those relationships. So animal sacrifice, which was done over and over again, 
was replaced by Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice for our sin to redeem us. So praise God we live on this side of the cross and his death on the cross redeemed relationships between men and women. So because we're in Christ, choosing to walk in Christ, we come under that redemptive covering. So now relationships have been restored. He's restored value and dignity and oneness. And he's brought wholeness and right relationships between us and God and between men and women. Isn't that good? So I love that. That's all the result of what Jesus did on the cross for us. So let's look at Galatians three twenty-seven to 28. This is what Paul's talking about here. So he says this, For all of you who were baptised into Christ, into a spiritual union with the Christ, the anointed one, have clothed yourselves with Christ. That is, you have taken on the characteristics and values. There is now no distinction in regard to salvation, neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you who believe are all one in Christ Jesus. No one can claim a spiritual superiority. So as we stand before God in Christ... There's no spiritual, spiritual superiority, that's hard to say, between men and women. How good is that? We are all equal before God. We are saved sons and daughters of the king, all with exactly the same rights, exactly the same. Um, we're all heirs of salvation. So as we look at this passage, let's look at it with those eyes, right? Through those eyes through the lens of Christ followers, those who've been redeemed through his amazing work on the cross. So my desire today is to submit to the text, to preach what's right there in front of us. Let's do that. To give us a true understanding of some of the words and to explain the cultural context. And then to ask the hard question, how do we apply this passage? How do we obey it? So are you ready? Are you ready to come with me? So let's look at three key building blocks for healthy relationships. Because if our relationships are healthy, then the church will be healthy, right? And a healthy church will grow. So it's so important that we have healthy relationships. So let's start Ephesians 5, 21. That's, that's my introduction. This is my first point. Learn to yield as yielded is shielded should come up on screen. Learn to yield as yield is shielded. So Ephesians 5.21 says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So as Aussies, let's be honest, we don't like to submit, right? It's not really what comes naturally to us. We've kind of spent hundreds of years glorifying our bush rangers like Ned Kelly. And he was basically a criminal, let's face it, right? <laughs> When driving, I've got a screen here, we often don't like to um, yield to these signs. You want to put it up on screen? No one likes these signs, right? Stop sign, give way. Some drivers aren't very good at yielding to people on the highway, not looking at anyone. How about toddlers? You don't need to keep, uh, teach a toddler to say no, do you? 
they, uh, they know it naturally, don't they? It's kind of like almost the first words that they learn. You say, come on, honey, pick up your toys. Let's have a bath. And they're like, no. So obviously in our present day, the word submit can carry negative and even oppressive connotations. It can point to a misuse of power and a suggestion of inferiority in the one who's submitting. But this was never Paul's intention when he wrote this verse. So the original Greek reads it like this. Hypertasso alalon on phobos theos. Try saying that. And the New King James Version is actually the literal translation of this. It says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So let's unpack a few key concepts here. First of all, if we backtrack to earlier in Ephesians 5, remember how it says, be filled with the Spirit. So if we're filled with the Spirit, mutually submitting to one another isn't hard, right? In fact, really, we can only do it with the help of the Spirit. And mutual submission brings unity, which blesses God. God loves it when we work together in unity. Secondly, notice that it says it will be done in the fear of God, not the fear of man. So perhaps a better, perhaps an easier to understand translation is that we do this out of a reverential love of God. We do this as we don't want to disappoint God. So the word hypertasso means literally to be under an orderly arrangement or an assignment. So it's a military word, which is not surprising considering we're talking about the Greco-Roman world. So an army is organised with levels of rank. There's generals, colonels, majors, captains, sergeants and privates. Often though, of course, we can misunderstand this word. Mostly when we hear the word submit, we see it as kind of a negative word. Let me talk about what it doesn't mean. When we submit to one another in the body of Christ, it doesn't mean that someone is smarter than you or better or more talented. It's just about God-appointed order. Wearsby writes, anyone who has served in the armed forces knows that rank has to do with order and authority, not with value or ability. So, for example, when a private submits to a general... He might be smarter, he might be more talented, he or she, more mature than the general. So the private submits to the general not so much as a person, but as a general, right? So you can see how important it is to be under that orderly arrangement. Imagine a church without any order or authority. That would be a place of chaos and confusion, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So we know that in a family or in an army, uh, and that's, this is just a metaphor, it's full of individuals. Look at the person sitting next to you. They're an individual. They're different to you. But we can never be individualistic, right? In other words, we need to always be thinking about the better good of the other person. We need to be thinking about what's best for the other person rather than ourselves. And that's really the essence of the Christian life, isn't it? It's about submitting. 
It's about yielding. It's about putting others first. That's what it's really all about, isn't it? So Paul also encourages us here in this mutual submission to have a team attitude, and I love that. When one person does well or succeeds, we all do well, right? So, for example, let's say in City Youth we hear on a Sunday that there were five salvations. That would be really cool. That would be a cause of celebration, not just for City Youth, but for all of us, right? When young adults is stretching and expanding, which they are, we all stretch and expand, right? When creative is flourishing, we all flourish, right? We all benefit from it. By the way, this morning, the presence of God in the worship, amazing. It's good to worship Jesus. It's good to acknowledge the cross. When City Plus, which is our ministry for 60 plus, give them a plug right now, when they're growing in wisdom, that wisdom flows through the whole body and brings strength, doesn't it? So it's a team attitude. When one does well, we all do well, right? And that works in marriage as well. Steve and I are a team, so we make most of our decisions bilaterally. And my weakness is covered by Steve's strength. Steve's weakness, I don't know if he has any, is covered by my strengths. We work as a team. What's really important to remember in this verse too is is the motive. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And Paul repeats this concept right throughout this whole passage. Here's the thing. He's not so concerned with people understanding the submission because he knows in the, <coughs> pardon me, in the Greco-Roman world, they understand that. They get that. What he wants them to understand is the why. Why they're submitting and who they're submitting to. And that's to Jesus. Because in the Christian world right now, this, this is a new thing for these Christians in Ephesus. It's a new thing. Actually, we're submitting not to the Roman emperor, but to Jesus. That's a new thing. So in verse 22, he says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And then in Ephesians 6.1, he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then in Ephesians 6, 5, he says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. So can you see, he mentions that as to the Lord, as a service to the Lord over and over again. And he's talking about the motive. So he no longer wants us to act in individualistic ways, but as a unit or a company, or a family, out of respect for God the Father, out of respect for Jesus. So our submission honours God. So I want to uh, show you a slide of our uh, pastor, Stan Everest, who married us. There's that moustache again. So our beautiful minister, Stan, took us through Prepare and Rich. That was our pre-marriage Uh, counselling and it's actually what we still use and I have the privilege of of leading young couples through Prepare and Rich now which is really cool. So what Stan said to us and it was probably the best um, marriage advice that we've ever had, he said to me, 
Felicity, if you will think about serving Steve's needs, putting Steve first. Serving Steve. And, Feli- and Steve, if you will think about serving Felicity, putting her first, serving her needs, then all your needs will be met. And it's great advice, isn't it? It's perhaps something that we don't do well or perhaps something that we need to be reminded of. But if we, that's basically yielding, isn't it? It's submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So let's have a think about what would mutual submission look like in the body of Christ? What would that look like? Maybe on a Sunday service when you arrive and you see there's 10 beautiful parking spaces right in front of the church, you might think, you know what? I'm going to leave those for someone who's older than me, someone who's maybe had a hip replacement, maybe a young family who've got prams, toddlers. I'm going to park further away. Do you think it might look like that? Maybe it might look like when one of our very um, beautiful ushers or hosts directs us to a seat near the front. Maybe we'll just do that. (laughs) Just a thought. Why would we do that? Because we understand they're asking that because they have delegated authority. We're doing that out of love of Jesus. We're doing that to prefer another. We're doing that to allow space for perhaps somebody who is less able-bodied than us to sit near the back. Maybe somebody will come in with a disability or social anxiety and just can't go to the front. Maybe mutual submission looks like that. Just leave you thought with you. So let's move on to the next verse. We've done one verse. Ephesians 5.22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as a service to the Lord. So let me read the footnote to this from the Amplified Bible as it explains it very clearly. The wife is subject to her husband, not to men in general. Everyone go, ooh. I think that's a a misunderstanding quite often, to be honest. It's a specific relationship. Paul writes, inspired by God, that wives should submit to the husbands as to the Lord, right? It's submission to Jesus. When I submit to Steve, I'm submitting to his delegated authority as he submits to Jesus. If he's being led by Jesus, it makes my job a lot easier. So reading on from the footnote, it says, not as inferior to him, as wives, we're not inferior to our husbands. We've just read from Galatians, we're equal, equal before God. Not in violation of a Christian ethics. So I would never do something that was in violation of my um, obedience to God, right? But I know that Steve wouldn't ask me to do that, so... But here's the thing, but honouring her husband as protector and head of the home, respecting the responsibility of his position and his accountability to God. So I want to bring that point out today. The husband's God-ordained responsibility is actually the spiritual head of the home as the protector of the house and the family. Now, I have no problem with that because I'm married well and I know that sometimes that can be difficult, but... Steve has that position and that accountability before God as the family protector. So I have my own personal bodyguard and I'm all right with that. 
So that leads me to my next thought, which is expanding on my first point. Learn to yield as yielded is shielded. It seems very clear to me that submission brings protection. Or you could say yielded is shielded. So I've brought this little umbrella, which you've probably been wondering, what is that there for? Just to demonstrate this principle. So James 4, 7 says this. It says, submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee. So as I submit to God, I come under his delegate, his authority. There's no authority higher than God's. When I pray in Jesus' name, I come under Jesus' delegated authority. And because of that authority, I now have protection. Can you see that? The, degre- the direct proportion of how, much I, of how much authority I have is in proportion to how submitted I am. So I have no power in my name against the enemy. None. And neither do you. But when I'm submitted to God... When I'm under his authority, now I have all of Jesus' authority, which is beyond imagination, to resist the devil. Isn't that great news? The same principle works as, let's say, as an Australian citizen, let's say I was in a foreign nation and there was perhaps a disaster or a crisis. I could go to the, as an Australian citizen, under Australian law, I could go to the Australian embassy and seek refuge. They could protect me, hopefully evacuate me. The same works with the police. Where's Marty? There he is. When we uh, submit to the police, they provide protection, right? When you... (laughs) Try try to, yeah. Only if people do as they're told, I suppose. So submission brings protection. I'm just going to leave that there. Mary Poppins moment later on maybe when we step out from under that protection then we're kind of in trouble right godly submission acted upon as a service to the Lord out of reverence for Christ brings incredible protection and I believe that certainly works in marriage so We've talked about Ephesians 5.21, Here's the thing. Paul already says in 5.21 that we're to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So when he goes on in the next verse to say, wives, submit to your husbands, he's not really saying anything new, is he? If we're meant to submit to one another. But let's go on to the next verse, verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. So for husbands living in this day and age, they'd be thinking, well, of course, Paul, you're not telling me anything that I don't already know. Of course the husband is the head of the wife. Because women are little more than property. That's basically what they were back then. Let me fill you in on a little bit of information about what it was like in terms of cultural context back then. Um, I did some research. I wish I had more time, but it was pretty incredible. First of all, Jewish culture had a low view of women. 
In Jewish law, a woman was not a person but a thing. She had no legal rights. She was basically her husband's possession. And although the Jew had the highest ideal of marriage by Paul's day, divorce had become tragically easy. So when Jesus came, the marriage covenant, as it was designed, was practically falling apart. And the situation was even worse in the Greek world. And this is the world into which Paul writes the letter to Ephesus. So here's what it was like for men. Prostitution was an essential and accepted part of Greek life. So men had courtesans or prostitutes for the sake of pleasure. Concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. So they lived with their concubines. And then wives so they could have legitimate children and the wives could look after the household affairs. So the situation for women wasn't really very good. And to make matters worse, there was no legal procedure of divorce in Greece. So home life and family life were almost falling apart and fidelity or loyalty in a relationship was completely non-existent. So can you see the background against which Paul writes? So what Paul is asking for here is really countercultural. And William Barclay writes this, it is impossible to exaggerate the cleansing effect that Christianity had on home life in the ancient world and its benefits that it brought to women. So consider all this in light of what Paul is commanding husbands to do. We're about to talk about that. He says, you are the head of the wife just as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the saviour. So at this point, husbands are probably thinking, wait a minute, Paul, back it up, back it up, buddy. What are you talking about? Are you actually saying that I, as a husband, should be willing to sacrifice myself, my needs, my desires and put my wife first? And Paul says, yes, that's actually what I'm saying because that's what God is saying. Consider this. We've been singing about this this morning. Jesus' act of obedience in going to the cross was and will always be the most clearly demonstrated act of submission for the sake of love in all of humanity. So now Paul is saying, guess what, guys? I'm holding you to the same standards of submissive, other-directed, Christ-like love. Wow. So Paul basically massively overturns the status quo. He turns it all upside down. He says to husbands, do you want to know what I want you to do as the head? I want you to serve. I want you to sacrifice. I want you to love as Christ loved. Wow. So this brings me to my second point with three minutes left. Love as Christ loves So this is specifically true of husbands. Paul says, husbands, 
Verse 25, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So consider what Jesus did in going to the cross. He gives up his heavenly position and he comes to the earth, right? He surrenders his status, his reputation, his security, his well-being, and then his very life. And he goes to the cross and is willing to be crucified. Why? For love. For love. For love for you and I, actually. So Paul asks this question, husbands, husbands, are you willing to love your wives in the same way? Wow. So girls, if you think it's a tough ask, being told to submit to your husbands, as to the Lord, let's not forget that second bit, consider what husbands are asked to do. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. This passage is not about control. It's actually about love. The Greek word for love is agapeo. It means the benefit to another, even at expense to self. So the husband is to love his wife with a sacrificial love, as Jesus did. The husband is to love his wife with a purifying love. I love what William Barclay writes, and this should come up on the screen. Any love which drags down a person is false. Any love which coarsens instead of refining the character, which necessitates deceit, which weakens the moral fibre, is not love. I love this last bit. Real love is the great purifier of life. Ephesians 5, 28 to 29 says this, In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. So this is an extraordinary instruction. Because the Greeks really loved their bodies. They took care of their bodies. Paul's saying, I want you to love your wife as you do your own body. And this makes sense because in the next few verses, he talks about how husbands and wives are joined together as one. So when the husband is loving his wife as he loves his own body, he's really loving himself, right? Because the two will become one. The love a husband is to show his wife must be a unifying love. For this sake, for the sake of love, a man leaves father and mother and cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh. Tearing away from her would be like tearing his own body. So this is the ideal that Paul presents in an age where husbands and wives are exchanging each other like they would their own clothes, like they would a toga. So my second point, love as Christ loves. And that brings me to my third and final point. Linger in his love for a moment. I want to encourage you today at some moment, take five minutes today and just consider how much Jesus loves you. 
we've been singing about that. We've been singing about the cross. We've been reminding ourselves what Jesus did for you and I on the cross. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27 says this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So, you know, it's true. Unless you understand how much Jesus loves you, how truly and purely he loves you, you'll never really be able to love others. We do need to get that. We need to understand Jesus loves me. And when in this verse, Paul's not talking about Jesus loving an institution. He's not talking about Jesus loving an organization. He's not talking about Jesus loving a denomination. He's talking about Jesus loving you. Personally, you. The body of Christ, the family of God, you. Jesus loves you. If we don't get this, then we'll never have that really necessary block for a healthy relationship. It's a building block for healthy relationships that we understand how much Jesus loves us. So the world more often than not sees love as transactional. You know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But real love is nothing like that. True love gives regardless of what it receives in return. And that's exactly what Jesus did for you and I on the cross. He gave his life, his life, knowing that you and I could never, ever repay him for that. How amazing. So I want to encourage you today to say these words, Jesus loves me. Jesus, the one who came from heaven to earth, God incarnate loves me. Jesus loves me. Not just when I'm doing my quiet time, not just when I'm not sinning. Jesus loves me truly, wholly, unconditionally, perfectly. Jesus loves me. And then finally, Jesus loves me. Not the person sitting next to you. Not the person in front of you who think you think is more holy than you. Jesus loves you, you. So I just want to finish the service just by praying for married couples. And if you're engaged, you can grab the hand of your fiancé as well and let's pray this together. So if you're sitting next to your husband or wife, why don't you grab their hand and let's pray. Yeah, some of you, your husband's wife, somewhere else. Did you know that the marriage unit, the way God designed it, Christian marriage, is a strong force to be reckoned with? Did you know that? And that's why the enemy tries so hard to attack marriages, because he knows when you guys work together as Jesus designed, you're a force to be reckoned with. Do you believe that? Because it's true. So let me pray for you now. Father God, I thank you for the beautiful marriage covenant. Thank you, God, it's your idea. It's not a man institution, it's your idea. 
And Lord, I pray for every married couple who's sitting here today, for every couple watching online. Lord, I pray you'd strengthen marriages. I pray you'd help us to love as you've commanded us to love. Help us to yield to one another out of reverence for you, Jesus. I pray you'd bless those marriages, bless the families, bless the children. I thank you, God, that you are the third partner in every marriage. We can't do it without you. We need your Holy Spirit. We really, really do. But I thank you, you're with us. You promise you'll never leave us. You'll never forsake us. When we walked down the aisle, when we stood at the altar, when we took that vow, we acknowledge you are with us. It's a covenant, husband, wife, and you. So we trust in you, Holy Spirit, to work in every marriage. I pray you'd bless marriages. I pray we'd prosper in our marriages. I pray we'd have strong marriages, marriages that are an example to the generations coming after us. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Bless every relationship too, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we'd love to um, open the altar here this morning. So if you have a prayer need for anything, if you'd like to pray, us to pray specifically for your marriage, for a relationship, maybe it's finances, maybe it's health, Whatever it is, if you have a prayer need, why don't you come out the front? Come quickly. Our leaders will be here to pray for you. Bless you guys. Next week, Rob Badman's finishing up Ephesians. Looking forward to that. Bless you guys.